Thanks for joining us today at BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business and Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Kirk LaPointe, Editor-in-Chief. The legalization of cannabis may seem like the arrival of an open field for producers to capture their share of the market, but the government has established a number of yellow and red lights on the road, and working through them is going to require a lot of ingenuity. And as the government opens up the market to other products, even more ingenuity. My guest has been uh, that ingenious person at times to oversee the development of some of the world's leading brands from power tools to razor blades uh, to, well, I'll ask him all about these things. Uh, He's an acknowledged and respected expert in marketing and brand building, and he's joined the board of Trait Biosciences. That's based in Toronto. It has developed some proprietary methods to more efficiently and safely produce cannabis-infused beverages and edibles, which are, of course, are going to be the next step and the legalized framework in Canada, and of course, in the wider world eventually. Peter McDonough joins me now. Thanks a lot for joining me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me, Kirk. Uh, well, it started off here. You, you've you've had this uh, amazing career around, you know, Gillette razor blades and, uh, uh, you know, DeWitt power tools and uh, brawn appliances and all that. What, uh, what are the secrets, do you think, of, of really smart brand building? Well, thank you. I, uh, I have been blessed to have a, a really interesting career across a variety of industries as it relates to power tools and grooming products and health and beauty care and beverage alcohol. And I think the, the common link across these disparate industries for me is an understanding of what are the things that motivate consumers to try a product? What are the insights that you can glean out of consumers as they have their consideration set, whether it be in choosing a shampoo or a conditioner, where I spent some time building an old brand like Silky Shampoo or make a powerful choice, like we did as we created the DeWalt brand while I was at Black & Decker. Or even more recently, you know, there's a booming uh, interest now within brown spirits in North America and the work that I did in working with Tom Bullitt and building Bullet Bourbon. And in each of these industries, The criteria that consumers are evaluating as they make their brand decision is different. But the important thing as someone that builds brands is to step back and understand what are the key considerations that motivate that purchase decision and hone in on understanding what they are so that you can bundle them together and create a viable brand proposition that enables consumers to feel good about that purchase decision. Yeah. It is interesting, though, because you're, of course, in in somewhat the same sphere that even I would have been in, uh, where where once we had a rather clear path between ourselves, what we wrote, what we broadcast, and yeah. and and the reader or the the listener or the viewer. Now, of course, it's <laughs> it's hard to even exponentially discuss how many more uh, opportunities people have in this era of abundance to to sample products, and in, in our case, media, yeah. but in your case, product lines. How, how do you puncture correctly? Well, I think there are a couple things that remain the same if you go across you know, various generations of brand building. And then there are some newer ones that are, that are currently active um, in today's market. I mean, the things that have remained the same are you need to put forward a product proposition that's predictable. You need to put forward a product that has quality assurance, you know, that there's no concerns related to health or safety. And now it's becoming more 
super important is moving away from in the past brands were built on having very large awareness and being a popular choice and therefore the people that chose that popular choice looked like they were smart popular people that's shifted a bit now in that the brands that are breaking through are ones that are building more sense of trust with consumers yeah. mm-hmm. and that they're communicating um, an emotional connection that, that creates a sense of shared values. And it can be either through the brand values that are communicated or marketing practices or something about the ownership of the brand that, that consumers can connect with. Or brands are creating the importance of social currency, that there's something about the brand that a consumer would want to share with their friends that their friends might not know about. So there's no benefit of, of announcing to your friends, hey, would you like to try Brand X when Brand X is the most popular brand in the category? Because there's no new news there. Mm-hmm. But if you can say, gee, I'd like you to share Brand Y with me, and your friends go, well, what is it about Brand Y that's of interest? And you provide that consumer the chance to look smart and share some insightful information about Brand Y and you know, cause their friends to go, Cool, I'd I'd like to try that. So you've got to plant. Um, I think you, <laughs> you got to plant some seeds. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You have to plant the idea in someone to then plant the idea in someone else. I mean, word of mouth is right. clearly back, but of course there are so many new techniques now to reach yes. audiences. But you mentioned that important word there, trust. Uh, yeah. Because of this environment now, where things can turn sideways um, almost yeah. in about five seconds on a company. Uh, do you get many chances to to basically make that positive impression? If you don't make it the first time, are are you kind of done now in this day? Well, it's a, it, it's a good question. I think that what you find if you look across the history of, of brands being built is consumers can be pretty forgiving. So I do believe brands do get a second chance. But what you've hit on is something that's really important, and that is the best managed brands are very consistent in their narrative that's trying to build trust. And they're very consistent in making sure that the way that they're they're engaging with consumers doesn't confuse them to have them say, gee, I thought I did understand this brand or the proposition that this brand had put forth. And now I'm a little confused by it. This feel this doesn't feel like mm. the brand that I thought I knew, either related to a marketing practice or even a line extension, you know, that, that make a product line extension that may come from the brand. Yeah. Um, and I think that that is becoming critically important because brands today are becoming more and more, if you look across the new cohort of consumers through the, the millennials coming in and, and making their purchase decision, brands today are an important form of social currency. You know, yes. People feel like they're making a statement with the brands that they choose. And certainly, you know, in some of the categories that that I've been engaged in, whether it be beverage alcohol or more recently within the cannabis industry or, you know, on job sites, the, the choice of a power tool is social currency, believe it or not. <laughs> well, <laughs> so sure. Why not? Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, and, it, and you can't bury bad customer service any longer, can you, Peter? No, I don't th- think that you can. Because I do think that today's consumer has an expectation that the brand choice that they make is accompanied by a responsible owner of that brand Mm -hmm. that as it relates to the quality assurance or as it relates to if I have a problem, I want to understand how it is that you're going to resolve that problem. Because what you've got with is the ability through social media and through online communication devices 
to have an immediate response time available when that consumer has indicated that they have a problem. Yeah. And they will share very quickly their dissatisfaction with their friends. And mm-hmm. they can do that in, in you know the context of, of easy social conversation, whether it's through texting or whether it's through any of their own you know, online engagement practices. Yeah. I don't pull that trigger too much, but I will say yeah. that in the handful of occasions where I felt it's way over the line, uh, yeah. <laughs> social media is pretty effective at getting me my answer. Oh, I would... Uh, I would think so. You know, if you look at the examples of, I mean, more recently you've seen it in situations where people got bad customer service at, at an airline counter in, you know, at an airport or a flight attendant um, behaving <laughs> yes. in a way that wasn't al- aligned with what they thought that they were going to be experiencing on that flight. And boy, it becomes a nightmare for these organizations in trying to um, go about making good for what was just an individual employee that might have demonstrated less than the best customer service. Because back to the point of trust, the uh, the competition in most product lines is pretty ferocious. Now, there aren't yeah. terribly many unique propositions left anymore. Uh, so you can differentiate yourself if you have this degree of uh, satisfaction of the customer pretty much at all costs. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that the... The key to building trust if, as, a, as a brand steward mm-hmm. is to really understand what motivates the consumers that you're targeting, right? Because it's the, the way you build trust is going to be different from one brand to the next, just as it's going to be different from one consumer cohort to the next. Yeah. And so it really requires having very good insight into what are the what's the decision criteria and what are the motivating factors and the consumers in the category in which you're competing in? Well, then that brings us nicely to your uh, your latest endeavor, which is to join the board of a company that is really into the cannabis space and will, I think, as time goes on uh, in Canada anyway, be able to to feature these products uh, in a recreational legalized environment. How do you build trust in this sector? Yeah, it's it's fascinating the emerging cannabis industry and building trust in a highly regulated environment and with a product offering that still has to to a degree a social stigma associated with it. And I think that the the best brand building activities that are occurring today um are somewhat challenged in Canada a little less so in the US because of the the nature of how the category is evolving. But in both countries, what you're finding is the importance of bringing forward a proposition that feels predictable to the consumer. Because remember, the real opportunity as as this industry grows is moving from what I would call the current enthusiast of cannabis to understand how to recruit a new cohort of casual cannabis users or or people who previously have not tried cannabis and moving them into uh, this category. And so to do that, you really have to think about how you go about creating a brand proposition that provides a predictable experience for those new users who are coming in, that provides a sense of quality assurance um, to make sure that they feel like the product that they're buying doesn't present any health uh, risks or safety concerns. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you go about moving into what we talked about earlier, 
how do you go about building trust and how do you create the sense of social currency so that the people that do try it want to recommend it to their friends. And it's hard within cannabis because of the various regulatory natures of this industry. Yeah, I want to talk a bit about some of those hurdles and impediments here in a second, but uh, but you touch on an interesting point, of course, which is that these are products uh, that uh, that people want to trust and they want to use safely. Is a big part of this um, the ability to tell people what their experience will be for those that don't use the products regularly? I think so, because I I think if you if you look at the cohort of consumers that we're looking to bring into a recreational cannabis proposition. There are people that are moving over most likely from enjoying beverage alcohol and in beverage alcohol, they understand um, as they engage with, with alcohol, what it feels like after a beer or two, what it feels like after a glass of wine or what it feels like after a well-prepared cocktail. And those sensations can be different from one to the next because mm-hmm. of the concentration or proof of alcohol that's in any one of those three different uh, approaches. And so what you've got within cannabis is, is people saying, I need to figure out how to get up this learning curve in a new category that I'm not familiar with. And I'm hopeful that you can provide me uh, a product proposition that I can, based upon my first experience of understanding how I feel after trying this product, it's predictable so that this the second time I do this, it's the same way. And I can start to get my own learning curve in as I interact with enjoying cannabis and feel as confident about my engagement with cannabis as I do with beverage alcohol. Is so it even important in the first experience that you you somewhat know maybe what you're going to feel like in two hours from now or three hours from now? Yeah, I think I think to a degree the consumer has to be willing to to you know take the risk of what does it feel like the very first time you mm-hmm. you know experience uh, cannabis because you can you can describe it to someone and you can explain it to them but until it happens you know they they don't quite know because some people as they get uh, high I'll, I'll, I'll use that term they become more socially awkward. Um, or they become more conversational, or they become more creative and expressive. And some people um, tend to get quieter and just want to listen to the music. And so, you know, each person is going to experience it potentially a little bit differently. Um, and hopefully all will have a, have a very positive experience, but it will be different from one person to the next. Yeah. But you've even got, though, an expansive product line. And I'm, and I'm sure you're going to find this with the infused products as well, where they they do um, try to align themselves with certain mood differentiation, right? They do. You know, I, I think it's interesting. There's there are some brands that within the the U.S. and Canadian market that are focusing on trying to communicate an end benefit right within their brand proposition. Mm-hmm. So in Canada, for example, uh, Tokyo Smoke you know, has their, their Tokyo Smoke brand segmented by user benefits. So one is called Go, which is, you know, a sativa blend that's for active lifestyles, whereas another one is called Pause, which is an indica blend that is for zoning out and pondering artwork and kind of mindless relaxation. So what they've done is they've tried to say, we can look at 
the THC component, whether it be indica or sativa, or whether it's going to be CBD, and we can position our brand to communicate the end benefit that you should experience if you try any one of these variants. Yeah, and that's really helpful. I, you know, I think a lot of consumers will will find that appealing. It's uh, it. It sounds very helpful on on the surface of it, but yet you you hearken also earlier to some of the regulatory impediments around sure. um, around marketing in this case. So what you've just talked about um, is is not something that anybody could put into a commercial, for instance, now right. in this country. So right. so here you know yeah. you've likely never had an experience like this before as a brand builder, where you actually um, you can barely mention more than the name. Right. Well, and I think this is why you have to you have to look at the the role of a bud tender within you know the dispensary and understand that their advocacy can be very important and critical and persuasive mm-hmm. in helping with that purchase decision um, because you don't have the opportunity to use a lot of the traditional media outlets that you would in other product categories, and you don't have the opportunity because of the regulatory nature of having uh, packaging that communicates all of these benefits and brings imagery onto the packs, you know, that might communicate different lifestyle or end benefits um, simply because of the way that the, the product is regulated. And there's, there are very few categories where you're trying to build brands that are subject to what I'll call those regulatory handcuffs of openly talking about uh, the brand proposition, the way, that you know they exist within the cannabis industry today. In in examining uh, the history of uh, American states that have uh, legalized recreational cannabis now for a number of years, and watching the Canadian market, wh- what would you say would would be the likely evolution of things like these regulations? That consumer information, for instance, w- w- how will that change? Do you think in the first year or two? Do you think logically? Well, I think the interesting thing to me about looking at what's happening in the U.S. in states that have enabled recreational and, and medical use versus what's happened in Canada is in Canada, um, Health Canada has restricted the product offering to be flour. Mm-hmm. And, and flour is a different brand building proposition than what's happened in the states where it's been uh, allowed because in in the States, the product range can go from flour to edibles, to vapes, to tinctures, to pre-rolls, to beverages. And in creating those various segments, those segments alone start to communicate a proposition for the brand differently than in a market where it's, it's all flour-based. So I think what you'll find as the, as the future um, progresses in Canada that that opening of the product range will start to shape different brand building propositions yeah. um, that simply don't exist within a flower only market today. So when we get into kind of cannabis 2.0, yeah. that's when we start to see it. Do, do, do you draw a relationship, by the way, um, between you, you mentioned the word taboo earlier, and I, and I think it's still there. Do you, do you draw the relationship between the taboo part of it and, and the fact that eventually we're going to have, I think, ways of consuming cannabis that will be far more subtle? The edibles, the infused beverages, the things that are yeah. are in a way certain they've been normalized over hundreds of right. years. Yeah, 
Well, I think I think the social stigma is a generational thing, right? Okay. And I think that part of it is if you look at the the evolution that that I see, this is a category, and I'll and I'll use the United States uh, in this example because the United States does offer all the various segments in the product offering. In the U.S., the cannabis market was primarily a flower market as it went from gray to medicinal. Mm -hmm. And in recent years, it's shifted from what was predominantly a flower market to be today. Gee, I, I think I think 18 months ago, it was probably 60 something percent flower. Today, I bet it's less than half flower. Wow. So you can see it moving from flower, which has the stigma of, of smoking. And the folks that, that smoke tobacco know how difficult it is in, in society to enjoy a cigarette, right? It's restricted where you can smoke. It's, um, it's restricted where you can buy them. And so as you look at what's going to happen within the cannabis industry, to me, people will move more and more towards the ability to enjoy cannabis in a way that is socially acceptable, which yeah. will inevitably mean moving away from actually smoking it. It will be different forms of ingesting it so that it's not socially awkward to announce that you're having, you know, a cannabis moment where you're, you know, you're enjoying a cannabis yeah. product. Where your neighbors don't complain about the smell down the hall. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, you, you can, you can see it evolving into various edibles and beverages and, and things that um, are not at all intrusive on the people around you as you enjoy your cannabis. Yeah. I, I'm, we're spending a lot of time and I'm, I'm uh, cognizant of your own time on this one. I want to wrap up with a couple of questions for you, would, which is the, uh, you're, you're now part of a company, you're on a, a board of a company that is uh, into that, what I would call the cannabis 2.0 phase. Right. Um, how, what kinds of products do you think do you believe will succeed out of a uh, with a company like this or with processes that it provides other suppliers? Well, I'm I'm excited to be on the the board of directors of a company called Trait Biosciences, and what what really appealed to me in joining them was they were bringing the the notion of advanced science into the cannabis industry in a way that enables the folks that are building brands to create a better product offering. And they do that in a couple different ways. You know, if you think about all the, the science that's used in, in agriculture to focus on better crop yield management and uh, better tasting um, products and products that are grown without uh, the need for aggressive pesticide use or things. What Trait has done is they basically brought to cannabis the things that they've learned in other parts of agriculture that say, we can provide a water-soluble cannabinoid. So water-soluble THC and water-soluble CBDs are a great consumer benefit because today what you don't have um, across the board is the ability to enjoy by ingesting uh, a cannabis product at a, an onset time that's predictable because it's a fat-soluble molecule. So it takes much longer. You've heard stories of people you know, enjoying something that that's cannabis based and it may take 25 or 45 minutes for the onset to kick in. And so unfortunately they get frustrated and they have a second one yeah. and they go from enjoying one to realizing that they've had one too many. Exactly. So that's the first thing yeah. that they've, they've fixed by making a water soluble um, 
cannabinoid. The second thing that they've done is they've got what's called super producer uh, technology that enables the cannabis plant to be harvested or to be cultivated and harvested in a way that's got higher concentrations of, of CBDs and THC within it. So you've got a better yield within the plant itself to give you all the great elements that you're looking for within the cannabis plant. And then the third way that, that they've approached this is to say, we're going to give the people that grow cannabis, the cultivators of, of, of the plant, the ability to grow cannabis and hemp in a way that doesn't rely on the use of pesticides. Yes. Um, and so what you've got is you've got a more pure product coming out of this. And then out of that pure product, you've got the ability for consumers to enjoy it and ingest it in a way that's much more predictable with its onset. I suppose in, in some of your earlier roles, I mean, Procter & Gamble would have had a, a very significant biosciences uh, element sure. to it. But this is, a, this is a, a bit of a new field for you. Do you think that because Canada is getting a bit of a head start on the United States, uh, that Canada has the opportunity here to be the one of the world research centers and how the products are used? I absolutely do. I mean, and that to me is what was so excited about trait biosciences, because the the technology that they have that they will bring into the Canadian market, Canada will be in the forefront, I think, of cannabis development because Canada has the ability, unlike the United States, to begin building a global franchise for the yeah. brands that it creates. It can ship from Canada into other markets around the world, which, as, as you know, from for regulatory reasons, can't happen with a U.S.-based brand proposition. Yeah. A California brand you know, can't ship outside of California. It's nope. got to, you know, it's got to originate there and it's got to be sold there. Whereas as trait works with folks in, in Canada, there'll be brands that are created using their water soluble technology. And as I said, their super producer technology and the, the purity in terms of um, the plant protection that enables them to build really strong brands in Israel and in Germany and New Zealand and Australia and other markets around the world that are opening up to the cannabis market. So before I let you go, what do you think is the one mistake that Canada shouldn't make? I, I would say that they shouldn't delay in opening up the product segments that are available for Canadian consumers to enjoy. Moving from the flower uh, marketplace to allow for brands and products to be developed in these other areas, whether it be vapor tinctures or beverages and edibles, um, to enable the, the cannabis um, experience to be enjoyed more broadly um, by the good folks in Canada. Yeah. When I started my media career, I, I never envisioned something like the internet. Uh, mm. But I wonder, you started in a steel mill. Did you ever imagine yeah, <laughs> being in the legalized cannabis business? I didn't, but it's it's uh, it's been a fascinating journey. And I think the really exciting thing about the cannabis industry is um, anyone that's engaged in it knows that we're just at the at the very beginning of what is going to be just a a, a remarkable ride in building a whole new product category for people to enjoy. Yeah. Um, Peter McDonough, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. I hope we get to do it again. Well, well Kirk, thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. Thank Thanks. you. And that's BIB Today for today. Thanks a lot for listening. I'm Kirk LaPointe. We'll see you again.